Hello, I'm Earl Fontenelle, and you are listening to the Schwepp, the Secret History of Western Esotericism podcast, online at www.schwepp.net. And today we are talking with Chris Brennan, a man who knows a thing or two about both astrology as a practical art or science, and the history of astrology, which makes him a perfect man to fill in our picture of Hellenistic astrology as we've begun to explore it. So Chris, thank you very much for being on the Schwepp. Much appreciated. Yeah, thank you. I'm, I'm excited to be here. I really enjoy your podcast so far. So it's great to be able to contribute a little bit from my area of specialty. And you, as it happens, do a podcast as well, which is The Astrology Podcast. And we'll link to that in the episode notes. So in approaching Hellenistic astrology, I'm not a specialist in astrology at all. So I wanted to first ask you about a bunch of basic terminological stuff, which for you is going to be really, really basic stuff you've been doing for years. But for me, is sort of a secret code. So natal astrology, is this the same thing as casting horoscopes? Uh, yeah, I mean, horoscope has become a generic term for either any sort of astrological chart that contains a diagram that depicts the positions of the planets, or, or more often in modern times, the term horoscope is used to refer to like the sun sign columns that you find in newspapers, but natal astrology is a specific branch of Western astrology where uh, astrologers cast a chart or a, a diagram which depicts the alignment of the planets at the moment that a person was born under the premise that the alignment of the planets has something significant to say about the quality of their life and things that will happen in their future. Right. And what is inceptional astrology? So inceptional astrology or cathartic astrology is another branch of Western astrology or Hellenistic astrology where you take the same premise that you can cast a chart for the birth of an individual and it will say things about their future and they apply it to the birth of anything else that has a definite beginning in time. So the start of a trip or like the marriage between two people or the founding of a city or other things like that. So it's the same concept applied to entities other than the births of individuals. Okay, I see. So things like founding a city. Okay, we need a really good moment to found our city because it's going to be important. Yeah, like historically or famously, the city of Baghdad was refounded uh, in the 8th century, I believe, by the caliph got together a group of astrologers and said, I want to move this city from, I think it was like Damascus to Baghdad, pick an auspicious astrological chart for the refounding of what will be the new capital of the empire. And they did. And this group of astrologers got together a, a chart and that became the foundational chart for the entire city. And that, that chart's actually preserved by Al-Biruni. Right. So that's your natal and your inceptional. What is universal astrology? Uh, so universal astrology, or sometimes in modern times, it's called mundane astrology, is the application of astrology to study large groups of people, such as um, such as entire nations, typically. And this is the oldest type of astrology that was originally practiced in Mesopotamia, where it existed before they had developed natal astrology and inceptional astrology, and they were just looking at astrological omens that occurred in the sky as being related somehow to the populace as a whole. So it pertained to things like famines and plagues and wars between countries and things like that. Right. But also seemingly to the king himself, which obviously does affect everyone because the king, yeah. the imperial, the emperor is sort of the 
stand in for the people in a way. But there's a lot of stuff in the Omen literature about like the king's brother, look out for him because, you know, Ishtar is doing this in the sky and this sort of thing. Yeah, exactly. The king became the, as the singular sort of representative of the state. Uh, many of the omens were often directed towards the king or interpreted within the context of the king or the leader of the country in particular. Now, there's a couple more things within astrology I'd like to ask you about. What are aspects, first of all? So, so within an astrological chart, within one of those diagrams, or let's say the alignment of the planets for the moment a person is born, the planets are each going to be in different places in the sky, and they're going to be in different signs of the zodiac. Um, and the aspects are relationships, different types of relationships or geometrical configurations that the planets can form to each other, uh, relative to each other, depending on where they're placed in the sky or where they're placed in the signs of the zodiac. And astrologers interpret those different relationships as being uh, favorable or unfavorable for different things, depending on the distance between them. I got you. So things like, is that things like trine and opposition and stuff like that? Yeah, the, the classical aspects are the conjunction when two planets are together in the sky, the sextile or the hexagon when they are 60 degrees apart, the square when they are 90 degrees apart, the trine when they're 120 degrees apart, or the triangle, and the opposition when they're 180 degrees apart. Gotcha. And do these aspects go back to Hellenistic materials? Yeah, so this is one of the unique concepts that sort of appears on the historical timeline with the emergence of Hellenistic astrology. And so it's usually thought to be one of the unique innovations that sort of emerged or, or perhaps potentially was invented at this time um, as part of this new system of astrology that was sort of emerging out of probably Alexandria. I'd like to come back to that. I'm going to talk, talk to you about that again when we get to Hellenistic astrology. What are the 12 houses? Are these just the signs of the zodiac? Is this another way of saying the signs? Um, no, I mean, the signs of the zodiac are a, a division of the ecliptic into 12 sectors. And the, the ecliptic is like a belt, an imaginary belt, um, sort of around the earth where the planets move through certain sectors of the sky repeatedly, or you might say they move through certain constellations uh, repeatedly, like a path through the sky, and they don't move through other constellations. So the zodiac is a division of that 360-degree path that the planets move through into 12 sectors. The houses is like a separate division, which is focused on what's called the diurnal rotation, which is the daily... For example, each morning the sun rises in the east, mm -hmm. and then it culminates overhead sometime around the middle of the day, and then it sets at the descendant on the western horizon in the evening. Eventually it anti-culminates around midnight, and then it rises again the next morning. So the sun does that cycle each day, but it turns out that all of the planets also rise and culminate and set. And the houses are a division of that daily cycle into 12 sectors. Okay, so it's, it's almost like a mini zodiac for a daily mini 12-fold division of the movement of a given planet or the sun or the moon. Yeah, you could say that it's a, it's a way of dividing a different frame of reference into 12 sectors from the zodiac, which is a separate frame of reference that's also divided into 12 sectors, but they have different you know, rates or different speeds since the houses, the planets move through the houses relatively quickly, 
and the planets move relatively slowly slowly through the signs of the zodiac. So are the houses, do they have names? Or are they just like one, two, yeah. three, four, five? Um, the houses in Hellenistic astrology, they are numbered one through 12 relative to the first house, which is the rising sign. But they were also, since the earliest references to them, they were also given a set of unique names, evidently probably in a hermetic text that was attributed to Hermes Trismegistus. And they have various names. Um, the first house was called the helm, like the steering wheel or the helm of a ship. Mm -hmm. uh, the second house was called the gate of Hades. The third house is usually referred to as the place of the joy of the moon. And uh, due to an association between the moon and the third house, the fourth house is called the subterraneous place because it's the house that's furthest underneath the earth. The fifth house was called the place of good fortune and it was associated with Venus. And the sixth house is called the place of bad fortune and it was associated with Mars. The seventh house is called the setting place. The eighth house is usually referred to as the place of, of death primarily or sometimes the idle place. The ninth house is called the place of the joy of the sun. Uh, the 10th house is called the midheaven. The 11th house is called the place of good spirit. And the 12th house is called the place of bad spirit or bad daimon. Right. So there's actually in this hermetic text that I think invented this scheme, there was actually some sort of explicit distinction where they're associating all of the houses in the top half of the chart, which are above the earth in the sky, basically, with the concept of, of daemon or the concept of spirit, and all the houses below the earth in the bottom half of the chart, they're associating with the concept of fortune or 2K. So there's a, a division between uh, spirit and fortune, which ends up in the interpretations, they end up implying there ends up being this subtle distinction between like um, spirit or soul versus body and like physical incarnation. Right which you can see how when that encounters Platonist philosophy, for example, and Aristotelian philosophy, people have a lot to go. They just run with it because right. um, it's so potentially rich in that kind of philosophical worldview. Thank you for that. That's really, really helpful. So in other words, in terms of the houses, if you're doing a birth chart for someone, one of the things you want to note is which house a given planet was in at the time they were born, right? So if Venus is yeah. in a house of Eudaimon, good daimon, good spirit, that's a, presumably a, a good sign. But if it's in the bad luck house, this is a problem. Yeah, that's one of the ways that it was used in order to determine the condition of the planets in the chart and whether they would be able to manifest positive or negative significations in different parts of the life. But the houses were also primarily used to identify different areas of the person's life and different people in the person's life and what role they would play and whether it would be positive or negative. So each of the houses or many of the houses are associated with, with um, family members, for example. The third house is siblings. The fourth house is parents. The fifth house is children. The uh, seventh house is the spouse. The eleventh house is friends. So um, the placement of different planets in those areas could indicate positive or negative things with respect to your experience or the types of events that would happen with those people in the, the person's life. Okay. And the planetary joys is another concept I've come across. Is, is this related to the houses? So you've had the joy of the moon and the joy of the sun, or are the planetary joys something else? Uh, yeah, the planetary joys is a scheme. It's a, it's a conceptual construct that was 
probably introduced in the first text that came up with the concept of the 12 houses and the names for them. And it assigned each of the seven traditional planets to one of the 12 houses. So the scheme has um, the moon assigned to the third house, which is called the place of goddess. The sun is assigned to the ninth house, which is called the place of God. Uh, Venus is assigned to the fifth house, which is the place of good fortune. And it's opposite to the 11th house, which is assigned to Jupiter, which is the place of good spirit. And then uh, Mars is assigned to the sixth house, which is the place of bad fortune. And that's opposite to the 12th house, which is assigned to Saturn, which is the place of bad or evil spirit. And the, finally, the last one that's, that's fascinating is they assigned Mercury to the first house, the helm. And this is interesting because Mercury in Hellenistic astrology is treated as each of the planets is usually given a gender, uh, masculine or feminine, but Mercury is the only planet that can go either way. And it often plays this sort of vacillating role in Hellenistic astrology where it could be um, when there's a division between two, it could be assigned to either one or it could be seen to partake from either one. Mm, the wild so card. These, yeah, it's the wild card factor. So they, they actually assigned Mercury to the first house, which is fascinating because the first house in Hellenistic astrology is associated with the Eastern horizon. And part of the first house using the approach to house division that they used in the Hellenistic tradition, whole sign houses, part of it can be above the horizon in the realm of the spirit and part of it can be below the horizon in the realm of body or the matter. So they almost deliberately assigned Mercury there. It's kind of like an interesting thing built into the conceptual construct that's kind of like winking at you about this um, sort of role that Mercury is playing in, in going in between or, or being a sort of med mediator between both realms. Mm, as the messenger of the gods and also the trickster. Right. That's beautiful. Right. And of course, this text, this uh, notional text that we're looking at the um, is by Hermes, who is yeah. sort of Mercury himself in a funny way. Well, when it's literally, as far as I know, I think according to like Garth Foden, that's the first reference to Hermes Trismegistus is actually this astrological text that's cited by Thrasyllus, an early astrologer, and somewhere around the early first century CE, he cites an earlier text on the 12 houses that he says was written by Hermes Trismegistus. And that text, if if Thrasyllus is saying this in the early first century CE, that must mean that that text was written sometime around the first century BCE or slightly earlier, thus making it the earliest reference to that sort of mythological figure um, who had sort of emerged at that point. And then we see some of the other later hermetic philosophical texts that are usually dated a little bit later to like the second or third or fourth century but um, we can see already in the astrological tradition, at least, that this figure has already developed and texts are being attributed to him. So thank you very much for these um, basic guidelines. I think I have a better idea of how some of the technical nitty gritty of this Hellenistic astrology is supposed to work. So let's move on to your typology, which you give in your book. We haven't mentioned your book, but you have a book entitled Hellenistic Astrology, The Study of Fate and Fortune, Amor Fati Press, 2017. So hot off the presses, which is a very interesting work because it gives a very kind of measured um, appreciation of the, the historical development leading up to and during and also after Hellenistic astrology, but also has a huge section on technical astrology for astrologers based in the Hellenistic astrological tradition. So it's a hard work to classify, but a really interesting work. And in this work, you basically give your typology for what defines Hellenistic astrology. And there's four basic things. The planets, the zodiac signs, 
the aspects, which we've touched on already, and the doctrine of the 12 houses. We've actually touched on all these things now, but it'd be nice to explore them a bit more. So, in other words, if I can sum up, and correct me if I'm wrong here, you have traditions leading up to this time which we can describe as loosely astrological from Mesopotamian omen literature onward. The, we, we know that they started casting horoscopes in Mesopotamia a bit before, like maybe the 5th century, but late 5th century, but definitely the 4th century and the 3rd century. So they, they were getting more recognizably astrological in the sense that they were doing horoscopes. It wasn't just about the, the populace as a whole anymore. It wasn't mundane astrology. It was natal astrology, I guess you'd say. But um, something new happens in the Hellenistic synthesis, which is you're defining by these four things. So let's go into these four things. First of all, the planets. What's so special about the planets in Hellenistic astrology as opposed to how they'd been viewed before? Sure. So, I mean, part of it is just tracing the history of astrology back and the type of astrology that's practiced today in the West as it's practiced now by, let's say, practitioners of astrology and trying to trace the history of that system back as far back as you can go. When you do that, you basically end up in about the first century BCE and that's when the system that has characterized Western astrology for the past 2,000 years with the, the four major components that all astrologers use and take for granted, which are the planets, the signs, the zodiac, the houses, and the concept of aspects, those four pieces all used together don't start being used and don't emerge as a sort of system until the first century BCE. And while you can go back earlier and we can see that there's long traditions of astrology in Mesopotamia and Egypt, and, and astrology is getting more complicated in Mesopotamia, and they developed the concept of birth charts by the 5th century BCE. They don't appear to be using things like aspects. They don't appear to be using things like houses. And they don't have some of the other concepts that astro later astrologers would take for granted associate with the planets. So um, in terms of what makes the planets unique in the Hellenistic tradition, there's certain concepts that are like core interpretive principles, like the concept of sect, which is the distinction between the, the Hellenistic astrologers would divide the planets into two teams. And there was like a daytime team of planets and a nighttime team of planets. And the planets were viewed as, as being, they were interpreted differently depending on if a person was born during the day or if a person was born at night. And that becomes like one of the core interpretive principles of Hellenistic astrology that's kind of unique to that tradition. Can you explain that a bit? So which are the nighttime planets and which are the daytime planets? Sure. So the, the daytime planets, there's two teams. The daytime team is, of course, led by the sun. The nighttime team is led by the moon. And then there's one benefic planet and one malefic planet that's assigned to each team because that's a separate distinction that also may have already originated in the Mesopotamian tradition between the planets that generally indicate positive things and the planets that generally indicate negative things. So the two benefics are Venus and Jupiter, and the two malefics are Mars and Saturn. And that may originally be derived from an observational distinction where if you look up at the planets um, just in the sky, Venus and, and Jupiter appear to be like bright white twinkling stars, whereas Mars is like darker and kind of reddish and Saturn is dark and kind of brown. So this may have led to then a conceptual distinction where that observational difference they then used to divide them into two separate sort of categories or, or sort of classification of positive and negative planets. So this gets worked into the concept of sect because in the daytime team and the nighttime team, you have one 
positive planet attributed to each team. So Venus is attributed to the nighttime team and Jupiter is assigned to the daytime team. And then there's two malefic planets assigned to each team so that Mars is assigned to the nighttime team and Saturn is assigned to the daytime team. And then Mercury, of course, is neutral and he can go either way depending on his condition in the given chart. Right. So having these sects, say you're born during the daytime, does that mean mm -hmm. that those planets that are on your sect, on your team, are going to be especially important to you in your fate? Yeah, there's certain techniques where those planets become more important in determining crucial things about your life. One of the main ways that the distinction seems to be used in the interpretive texts, because we have a bunch of delineation texts, and, and for example, in the second century astrologer Vadius Valens, we have a bunch of chart examples where he goes through and teaches you how to interpret a birth chart or how he gives examples of how different birth charts have worked out in different people's lives. And he even uses his own chart a bunch of times to show you how different events played out astrologically in his life, like a shipwreck or moving to Egypt and other stuff like that. So the way that the sect concept is consistently used the most often is that they seem to use it to say that people with day charts, the most positive planet in their chart is going to be Jupiter and the most negative or difficult planet in their chart will be Mars. Whereas for people with night charts, the most positive planet will be Venus and the most challenging planet will be Saturn. So then you would take that concept and you would apply it to the concept of the 12 houses. And you would say, well, where are those two planets? Where's the most positive planet? Where's the most negative planet in the houses? And that will tell you the sector of the life where things will tend to be the most fortunate versus the sector of the life where things will tend to be the most unfortunate. So for example, if the most positive planet is in the seventh house of relationships, then it may indicate that your fate is to have uh, to get married and to have a successful marriage. But if your most negative planet is in the um, 11th house of friends, then it may indicate that you uh, are, are fated to suffer misfortune when it comes to your friendships or to have the death of an important friend or something like that. Right. Let's move on to zodiac signs. We've talked in a previous episode about where the zodiac came from. And um, it's important to emphasize that the zodiac, on the face of it, can be used by astrologers, but also by astronomers. So we have evidence for astronomers in the Hellenistic period who had no time for omens and things like this, like Eudoxus is an early example. But he still used the zodiac as just a kind of map. But what is the function of the zodiac in Hellenistic astrology? One, it's used in order to qualify the way that the planets manifest their significations in a person's life. And depending on what sign of the zodiac a planet is in, the planet will behave differently or was thought to behave differently uh, depending on that placement. So that's like one thing is that it, it alters the sort of quality of the meanings of the planets. But the other thing that was unique about the zodiac in the Hellenistic period, one of the things that emerged is they somebody developed or somebody invented a system for assigning each of the visible planets to one of the signs of the zodiac. And this began what's called the rulership scheme that's been consistent in most traditions of astrologies for the past 2000 years. And it starts by assigning the two luminaries, the sun and the moon to the two signs of the zodiac right after the summer solstice, where it's the hottest and brightest part of the year in the Northern hemisphere. So they assign the moon to Cancer, a feminine sign, and the sun to Leo, a masculine sign. And then they assign each of the other visible planets 
uh, to signs of the zodiac flanking out from the sun and the moon in zodiacal order based on their relative speed and distance from the sun. So first, Mercury gets assigned to this two signs flanking the luminaries, so to Gemini and to Virgo. Then Venus, the next furthest planet out, is assigned to the next two signs, which is Taurus and Libra. Then the next furthest planet out is Mars, which is assigned to Aries and Scorpio. Then Jupiter is the next furthest planet out, and it's assigned to Pisces and Sagittarius. And finally, Saturn is the furthest and slowest and dimmest of the visible planets, and it gets assigned to the furthest signs of the zodiac from the two luminaries, which is Capricorn and Aquarius. Okay. So this sets up a system of associating the planets with each of the signs of the zodiac. Which will bear interpretational fruit, I guess, when you come to read a, a, um, a birth chart. Which yeah, we'll get I mean, to. it becomes the, the primary thing that most of the interpretations of the signs of the zodiac are predicated on even today, 2,000 years later, if you look at like what the signs of the zodiac are and what their qualities are supposed to be, often those are derived from this presumption about which planet is associated with which sign of the zodiac. And that scheme for assigning that is the sort of first scheme that's introduced or arises in Hellenistic astrology that seems to be another one of those unique inventions. But it's just weird because it's this, it's this abstract sort of schematization, which is almost, it's like some scholars try to say that it's like uniquely Greek because it's almost like a geometrical schematization uh, that's built into the system that then has interpretive ramifications. You can see why they say that because the Greeks seem to be the ones who at this time are really going for cosmological system in a way that no one seems to have done. The kind of system that you can make into a nice circular diagram, right? With lots of uh, interlocking parts and start to look at how things might interact. Well, we don't really have evidence for that from the Mesopotamians or the Egyptians. They definitely have cosmologies, but they're not mathematical. They're not geometric in the same way the Greeks were, right? Right. Yeah, exactly. And, and this system that arises at this time is like re replete with these weird schematizations, which then interlock with other schematizations. And it's also clean that it looks like it's sort of artificial that somebody must have developed or invented it. And so that's why the majority of the scholars over the past century think that Hellenistic astrology represents an invention that somebody came up with sometime around the first century BCE or so. Do you agree? Yeah, I mean, it's a tricky debate because there's two sides and um, it's become an academic debate, both in the academic community and in the astrological community. And there's there's sort of like extremists on both sides that take their arguments in very far. And I think a sort of middle ground interpretation is probably the safest bet and is probably the most likely that it was a little bit of an invention and a little bit of a gradual development. But I do lean more towards the sudden invention side because some of these schematizations are way too clean to have just like happened accidentally. Somebody must have come up with it at a specific point in time. And we can actually trace most of that development back to just a collection of like a few texts, which are some of the earliest authors who are mentioned by most of the Hellenistic astrologers. And I think it's a safe bet then to say that some of these schematizations were probably introduced in those texts. So these are the texts of Hermes, Nehebso, Petosiris, if I'm pronouncing those right, um, and other pseudonymous literature emerging out of Egypt, yeah? Yeah, that was those, those four core authors seem to be the most important ones, which are chronologically probably the Hermes text, followed by the Asclepius text, followed by the Nechepso Petosiris Compendium, which is 
a bit mysterious because most of the time Nechepsa and Pedasiris are mentioned together as like a, a duo, which makes it look like their compendium must have been authored and attributed to both, but then occasionally certain parts of it will be cited separately as if they were separate works. And of course, these texts don't survive. We just have fragments of them and citations of brief passages by later authors. So it's kind of like what you're dealing with with studying the early Stoics, where none of the early foundational texts survive. You're just getting citations from later expositors. That's basically what we're dealing with in the astrological tradition as well. Now, we've talked about aspects, the which is the third aspect haha, of your uh, definition, your typology of Hellenistic astrology. And I guess you've sort of explained it. Maybe if I try to explain it back to you, tell me if I'm getting it right. The planets are going to be rising in a given sign on a given day. And they're also going to be moving through various houses and stuff. We'll get to the houses in a minute. But they will be relating to each other geometrically in the sky in such a way that you can you can say, ah, the Venus and Mars are both rising in the same sign on this day. That's significant. This is aspect, right? It's the, it's the dialogue between the, the planets. Yeah, I mean, one of the ways that it was viewed, there were different ways, but one of the analogies that was used, for example, by Firmicus Maternus, this seems to have been a common analogy, and they treated the signs of the zodiac as if they were the homes or the dwelling places of the planets, and this is connected with that rulership scheme I mentioned earlier, where certain planets are associated with certain signs, but they actually used an analogy and said that when a planet is in the sign that it rules or is associated with, it's literally like a person who is living at home, and they're able to sort of do the things that are most conducive to their own functioning, like sleep in their own bed or cook their own food or what have you, so that they can get up and go to work each day and be at their most productive and most effective versus when a planet is not staying in its own sign, when it's in the sign owned by another planet, it's like a person who's staying away from home and they have to rely on that person for support in order to give them good food to eat and a good bed to sleep on and so on and so forth. So anyway, the analogy of two planets in the same sign is like two planets living in the same home. And the question of whether those two planets complement each other and get along or whether they conflict in some way. Like if you put a two benefics together, that might be an easy relationship. Whereas if you put a benefic with a malefic, that might be more problematic or more challenging. And then they also have different relationships based on if they are in differing signs that's connected with different sort of Pythagorean theories about um, the nature of different geometrical aspects and things like that, or geometrical relations. Right. Does the name Pythagoras get mentioned in the astrological literature? Not as much as you would think. I mean, there's one likely Pythagorean principle that's built into the zodiacal the zodiac signs and one of the conceptualizations that's like inherent to a lot of their interpretations, which is they take the the even signs to be feminine and the odd signs of the zodiac to be masculine. And that's likely derived from just Pythagorean number theory that holds, you know, odd to be uh, masculine and you know, etc. So that's one area where there's sort of an implicit use of Pythagorean theory that's sort of built into the system, but Pythagoras is not otherwise mentioned. I think there may have been some texts because like in the first century CE and BC, it seems to be really common to 
attribute your writings on an esoteric text to mythical or legendary figures. There may have been some texts attributed to Pythagoras, but it's, he's otherwise not cited as much as you would expect. And last but not least, the doctrine of the 12 houses. So again, let me, let me see if I've got this right. There's the zodiac, which divides the sky into 12 macro cosmic slow moving sections but then you also have the daily motion of any celestial body or apparent motion obviously around the earth including when it's not visible to you so underneath the earth and then coming mm -hmm. back around the other side and these are all these are the 12 houses this this course is divided into 12 equal parts is that right? Yeah, and let me let me find. There's actually a way I could explain it that's much simpler, especially in terms of why there are twelve. Because one of the things that was rediscovered over the past twenty years with the rediscovery and the translation of a number of these texts, it was actually a unique discovery that the astrologers made first, and it shows one of the unique reasons why sometimes, even though practitioners can be not reliable sources for studying academic historical methods, sometimes they're familiarity or interest in the material can bring a unique perspective, but there was an astrologer named James Holden who wrote a paper in a, an astrological journal about in 19, early 1980s, where he pointed out that the original approach to house houses, house division, what it's called, that it was being used in the earliest Greco-Roman texts is what's now called whole sign houses, where all they were doing is they were seeing what sign of the zodiac was rising over the Eastern horizon at the moment the person was born, and whatever sign of the zodiac that was, that entire sign from the beginning of that sign to the end of that sign would become the first house. And then the next sign after that would become the second house and the sign after that would become the third house and so on and so forth. And so that's why there end up being 12 houses because there's 12 signs of the zodiac. So they're using the signs of the zodiac as the houses, even though there's sort of different properties associated with each. They sort of overlap in that system. Interesting. And does modern astrology go with whole sign houses or do you have different, is there, an, presumably if there's whole sign houses, there's another way of looking at the houses. Sure. So what happened is that there were other approaches to house division, even in the, the Greco-Roman tradition where they used, the other approach was the more degree-based form of house division where you find the exact degree of the ascendant or the exact degree uh, where the eastern horizon meets with the uh, the ecliptic or the zodiac. And then that exact degree, you measure out exactly 30 degrees forward in zodiacal order, and that becomes the first house. And then the next 30 degrees after that becomes the second house and so on and so forth. So there were more sort of specific degree-based forms, and then there were more general sign-based forms of house division, which was the whole sign house approach. So what happened is that in the medieval period, there's some sort of shift that we still don't understand very well today, where they shifted entirely to the degree-based forms of house division by around the 9th or 10th century, and the sign-based form of house division was completely forgotten for the next thousand years, so that in modern astrology until 20 years ago, um, the degree-based form was all that anybody knew, and the sign-based form was never used or wasn't known as a concept. But what's fascinating about that is in the Indian tradition, there were trade contacts between the Roman Empire and India from the first century forward, where, well, new trade routes, let's say, were rediscovered in the first century so that trade increased. And there was a text on Greco-Roman astrology that went over on a ship and was translated into Sanskrit. And this started a long tradition of 
horoscopic astrology in India. And in India, they still use whole sign houses 2000 years later as their primary approach. And they never really picked up the degree-based approach. So there's funny little historical things about that. And the history of house division is one of the most hotly debated um, topics within the, the astrological community over the past thousand years. I guess so, because you got to get it right, right? And if there's two systems out there, you know, and they're, they're going to be different, something will be in a different house, depending on which system you use, then that's going to be important. Yeah, if the houses, if like one house indicates marriage and the other house next to it indicates enemies and illness and the, the planetary placement could be in one house or another, it makes a huge difference in terms of your the astrologer's interpretation. So that's why it becomes a hotly debated topic. Although it's funny is I actually, the longest chapter in my book is right in the middle and I spend um, at least like 50 pages going into the origins of the debates around house division. And they seem to actually trace them back to those foundational texts. And it seems like what happened is that the Hermes text introduced the concept of whole sign houses, as well as probably the concept of the 12 houses to begin with. But then the next text or one of the next ones, the Asclepius text introduced the first method of degree-based house division. Um, and then the Netshepso and Petasiris text may have introduced an additional modification in a third type of degree-based form of house division. So some of the debates may go back all the way to the foundational authors of the Hellenistic tradition. And a lot of what happened later was different later astrologers arguing with each other about which foundational approach was best or which one should be used primarily. So that is a fairly superb rundown of what is special about Hellenistic astrology. And um, what becomes very clear from your book to a layman like me and from other books I've read on the, the subject, we talk about Hellenistic astrology, but it seems like really what we're talking about is astrology full stop. These, these disputes, notwithstanding, because it's a very rich, and, um, tradi a rich tradition with a lot of um, argumentation going on within it, it seems like mm -hmm. the stamp that Hermes and his colleagues put on this art seems to have more or less just gone forward through the ages and even spread to places like India and China, as you say. Um, yeah, at least in terms of the Western tradition, this system that was established, this fourfold system of planet signs, houses, and aspects that comes into being in the first century BCE became, you know, there were some modifications to it over the centuries, but for the most part, it, it stayed surprisingly consistent over the past 2000 years. And some pieces of it were tr even transmitted to other traditions like in India where they adapted some parts of it but then merged it with their own indigenous astrological traditions to create a unique hybrid which has then been practiced there for you know 2000 years some parts were transmitted to China and Japan and they took some pieces of it and incorporated it into their approaches so it is astrology especially western astrology we have to be a little bit more careful when it comes to the other traditions since they have diverged um, significantly and may not, may or may not be representative in terms of equivalent to the Hellenistic tradition. So the last thing I really wanted to talk to you about in this episode, because you have the unique perspective of a practitioner and historian, let's imagine that I've just had a child and it's the year zero and I live in Egypt and I have taken my child to you, the astrologer who is working in this tradition. If it's possible to do this in a quick way, can you run through what you're going to do? 
as an astrologer to ca cast the chart for my little child. So, I mean, we have to be a little bit careful because on the one hand, we have a lot of theoretical texts that survive that show their astrologers teaching other astrologers how to interpret charts from a technical perspective. And we don't know, we don't have like a live recording, like an audio or a video recording of how they would have presented that to a client. And sometimes how the astrologers talk to each other can be different than how they talk to clients because there's certain things that they may think that they can see about a person's fate, but that they may not fully articulate to the person directly, uh, especially if they're bad things. Interesting. Let's and, say, and why is that? Is that because they don't want, they, they want their client to go away happy? Or is it because they don't want to have a bad effect on the client's coming life? Uh, mostly in, in modern times, it's primarily debated about, is it helpful? or Are you harming somebody psychologically from a psychological standpoint by saying something, even if it ends up being true, to have that weigh on their conscience. Now, in the Hellenistic tradition, it must have been different, though, because every single astrologer, like they all have different, some of them different philosophical backgrounds and different philosophical allegiances in terms of Hermeticism or Stoicism or Aristotelianism, and sometimes think astrology works in different ways as a result of that. Like some of them believed that the stars literally caused events to happen through some sort of um, physical mechanism, whereas other astrologers thought that the stars merely acted as signs or omens of future events. But despite the philosophical diversity, the one thing that they all mention pretty frequently is that the purpose of astrology is to know what will happen to you in the future and to know your fate so that you can better come to not just understand, but also accept it and prepare yourself for events in the future as though they're in the present, thus not being caught off guard and thrown completely out of balance when the events actually occur so that you're not like extremely overjoyed in the case of positive events or extremely depressed in the case of negative events. This sort of, sort of quasi-stoic philosophical principle is mentioned by just about all of the astrologers so that it seems to be the one thing that everybody agreed on and it must have been the one cultural sort of touchstone that underlied the practice of divination and astrology, especially in that time period, in the like post-Stoic time period of the few centuries after the rise of Stoicism. It seems like that approach to, to divination, in particular astrology, was used to figure out your fate so you could accept it. But I, but I still wonder sometimes, you know, how blunt they were in consultations about outlining things versus sometimes just having these theoretical texts where they say, this is how far you can take it theoretically. That, that being said, to answer your actual question, sorry about that <laughs> no, digression, no. but they would get together with an astrologer. They had these game boards. They were like um, elaborate chess boards, sometimes made out of wood and, and ivory and gold that they would open up that would have an outline of the zodiac inscribed on it. And then they would um, calculate the chart, probably a, like calculate it separately on a separate piece of papyrus, because we actually have hundreds of these little pieces of papyrus that have planetary positions that survive from the sands of Egypt and stuff like that. But they would probably have that calculation done separately. And when it was time for the actual consultation, they would sit down with a client with one of these boards and they would take stones that matched the qualities of each of the planets and place them on the board in the zodiac to recreate the person's birth chart. And then they would proceed to have the consultation, probably verbally, has been the primary method of consultations all along. So some of them did seem to have a sequence. And Ptolemy, for example, 
seems to tell us that the the length of life treatment should go before all other approaches to astrology because there's no he says there's no sense in predicting great success for somebody when they're 60 years of age if they're never going to live to see that specific year of their life so one of the things they may or may not have done depending on their ethics was attempted to determine the length of life using a specific technique that had been developed and probably first introduced in the Petasiris text because everybody cites Petasiris for the length of life technique. Um, after that, they would have gone into other standard areas, largely matching the 12 houses. So things like parents and early upbringing, um, whether the life had a strong foundation or whether the person would struggle um, with basic sustenance issues in their life. They would focus on um, things like you know marriage and whether the person would be married or not, career, whether the person would be successful, their home and living situation, if the person would stay at home or if they would live abroad for some reason, um, friends, enemies, financial matters, siblings, children, and health, illness, death, and inheritance. All of those are, are the main topics sort of treated in the 12 houses, which probably would have been some of the standard things that an astrologer would have dealt with. And they may not have dealt with all of those in one consultation necessarily, but instead it may have been topic specific depending on what the person was coming to them about, because oftentimes people would probably come with a specific issue and then they would look at the house that matched that topic. Brilliant. And do we have evidence of people consulting astrologers about other things like I have a business venture I'm thinking of embarking on. Should I do it? Will the ship sink? That sort of thing. Yeah, I mean, we have we do have a separate text. One of the earliest texts on electional and inceptional astrology is by Dorotheus of Sidon. And that's for, he teaches, teaches you in book five of his text, a bunch of rules for casting a chart for the inception of event to see if it will be successful or if there will be major problems with it. And some of those rules are also probably flipped around and used for what's called electional purposes to select an auspicious date to initiate a specific type of venture. So he tells you if you want to get married, an auspicious alignment would be when Libra is rising and Venus is in the 10th house or something like that. And he'll tell you a specific combination of stars or, or planetary placements to look for in the chart and then to do or initiate your venture at that specific time on that day. Right. So if he's saying Libra's rising and Venus is in a certain house, how long is someone going to have to wait for that to happen? Is that, is that going to happen at some point in a year or might you have to wait seven years or something? I mean, there's different types of different levels of, of intensity on that, depending on what's actually practical and what the time frame is that the astrologer is given to work with and them just basically making the best out of what's available right. versus the astrologers outlining in their texts, you know, abstractly what the best situation would be theoretically, which may not occur for, you know, 10 years or 20 years or 30 years or something like that. So that's another one of those areas where sometimes we have to be careful about the sort of abstract ideal situation outlined in the technical texts versus the sort of practical details of what they would have done when it was like getting down and dirty and somebody has to get married in the next six months and they, you have to find the best electional chart within that time frame. Right. So one last thing I'd like to put to you before we finish this episode. So in my own attempts to educate myself about astrology, because it is the sovereign art of Western esotericism, in fact, I've come up with my own sort of definition of what I think we mean when we talk about astrology. And I would like to run it by you and see what you think of it. 
I'm defining astrology as a basic belief in astral causation, whatever form that takes philosophically, right? You've laid out a few possibilities there. And the ability of human beings to get involved in that, whether it be by understanding it, or later on with astral magic traditions, it might be to use astral causation very actively for your own benefit by getting the right stones, the right plants, um, various other things. So I'm, I'm sort of including that in what I would call an astrological worldview, right? And then another key aspect of it is a geocentric cosmology. So very specifically, a cosmology that emerges out of Plato, Aristotle, and then through Hellenistic astronomy. Um, this is the cosmology where astrology takes place in the West. And even nowadays, where people don't believe in that cosmology anymore, they still work with concepts from that cosmology, right? Mm -hmm. Plus the zodiac, plus specific types of prediction, which I take to be two, basically horoscopes, various types of chart drawing, to have a look at what the future for a given thing is, and looking for good and bad moments to do things. I guess this is electional astrology, elective astrology, right? Right. What do you think of that as a definition? So basically, astral causation plus the human actions that follow if you believe in astral causation, right? And then all taking place in a geocentric cosmology with a zodiac and practicing these two types of basic divination. Sure. So um, a few things. So one, I think we have to be really careful, even though it's true and, and virtually all academic definitions of astrology, especially ones that are derived from the works of people like David Pingree, take astral causation as being foundational for Hellenistic astrology and, and makes that part of its most characteristic. He says astrology in general has to be defined within the context of, of astral causation you have to be really careful about that because there was this inheritance from the earlier Mesopotamian tradition where they were just viewing the stars as being signs or um, omens of future events and not as causes. So I don't think that astral causation is actually necessarily inherent to the definition of astrology, even in the Hellenistic period where that became more common and more popular. And there were some astrologers like Ptolemy who you know, developed a, a conceptualization of astrology that was entirely predicated on astral causation and his work became the most popular and influential over the next 2000 years but ptolemy wasn't the only astrologer practicing in alexandria at the time and when we compare his work to other astrologers like valens or, or dorotheus they don't necessarily seem to be as, as sort of hardcore about defining astrology in causal terms but instead as simply omens or, or signs and I think philosophically, it makes a huge difference because if you think the planets are literally causing you or influencing you to do something, you may behave differently than if you think that the planets are simply acting as like a clock on the wall, just like a clock on the wall tells you it's nine o'clock in the morning and is not the cause or the reason it's nine o'clock in the morning, it's merely reflecting it. That has like vastly different philosophical implications for what you might do with that information. Um, and this is where you also get the division between like some of the magical traditions and the electional traditions and things like that. So I would be very careful about sort of baking the idea of astral causation directly into the definition of astrology because there are traditions of Western astrology where the stars are not seen as causes, the planets right. are not seen as causes. So maybe I want to back off from that and just say 
something like a belief that the stars tell us what's going to happen. Yeah, the belief, um, I, I always frame it as astrology is the, it's the belief that there's a correlation between celestial movements and earthly events because a correlation can mean a causation or it can just mean like modern astrologers, for example, or some traditions conceptualize in the context of synchronicity as an, an acausal connecting principle right. so that there's a correlation occurring that is not causally based, but not, but is instead um, predicated on a similarity in meaning in some sense. And would you say the two types of prediction that I've laid out are essential aspects of astrology? So doing natal charts and doing these um, elective consultations. Sure. Uh, and we have to be, it's like there we have to be careful because it seems like sometimes there were like hardcore Stoic astrologers that just did natal astrology and they believed that the purpose of studying astrology was just to figure out what your fate was, that way you could accept it. And that was it. And that's like the end of the purpose of astrology is almost this very Stoic philosophical principle it was almost like a shortcut for the person because in the Stoic text, there's always like this idealized Stoic sage who could, you know, ultimately would be able to accept any events that happened to them and they would treat them all as having the same value and they would not be thrown off by either positive or negative events. But I get the sense that with astrology, it was used as a shortcut for like the everyday person that understands that, yeah, that's the ideal, but I'm not a Stoic sage yet. And if my child dies when I'm 33 years old, I'm going to have a really rough year and I'm going to be really thrown off by that. And even though, you know, I would ideally like to be not affected by that in order to maintain my stoic equilibrium, if I had some sort of like heads up that I might have to deal with difficulties surrounding children in the future, then that might prepare me better sort of philosophically or, or spiritually or what have you for accepting that. And it was used as like a, like a crutch or like a shortcut in some sense for those that were not, had not achieved the like enlightened stoic sage level. So there's like that approach, but then there's the separate approach, which is more connected with the magical traditions, which believed that if something is indicated and you don't do anything, then the expected result will occur. However, if you try to counteract it, if you use either certain magical traditions or if you use electional astrology to alter the date that you would have taken a trip and you go... Uh, instead of going on Tuesday, you leave on Wednesday, then that may actually uh, alter the outcome of the future. And that's probably tied into even some platonic traditions where like in the middle Platonist, you had this idea of like conditional fate um, or, or some, some of the scholars call it hypothetical, but I think conditional is probably better where they said that once you make the choice, the outcome is, is determined, is fated, but that the original choice to make the action is not predetermined, which always looks kind of weird. And a lot of the scholars who discuss this say, yeah, it's not, not that theoretically consistent or not that impressive philosophically. But when you view it within the context of astrology, it seems very similar to the, the basic no notion of electional astrology, that by making a choice of initiating the start of something under one alignment of stars versus another, that that may have some bearing on the outcome in the future. And there's something about that parallel that's always been kind of underexplored to me. Well, it's interesting that you say that because you're actually foreshadowing a lot of the debates that occur within Western esotericism about astrology. So I think mm -hmm. of uh, Pico in the Renaissance, who I believe wrote on this very subject. Astrology, yes, of course. Astral influences, yes, of course. Elective, now there's the crux of the issue, right? 
does elective astrology make sense philosophically? And Plotinus, much earlier in the third century CE, also addresses this issue. Sort of, it's sort of peripheral to what he's trying to. He, in his text, are the stars causes? Causes, right? Um, yeah, that was his entire thing because he's he's writing in the century at, or two after Ptolemy. When Ptolemy's causal approach to astrology has started to become wildly popular and started to be adopted as like the cosmology of the day, not just his his astronomical cosmology, but we have to understand that when he framed astrology as causal, that really did start becoming the the majority like mainstream outlook on astrology. But that's why somebody like Plotinus writing that was so important. He, he comes back to it like twice, I think, in his collected works, where he's really urging people not to view astrology. He doesn't say that astrology doesn't work. Um, I think Peter Adamson actually argues this the most clearly. He just says that astrology works, but it just doesn't work by causing events to happen, but instead just by acting as signs or omens of future events. Right. So it's a hermeneutic of the universe. Chris Brennan, thank you so much for being on the Schwepp. Hugely appreciated. And yeah, thank uh, you. It's, it's an honor. <laughs> you're too kind. Take it very easy and uh, stay esoteric. <laughs> <laughs>